to another episode of Bow Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Tamar Haja. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm joined today by my lovely co-host, Dr. Jen Lee from Nationwide Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Jen, how are you? Hi, Tamara. I'm doing great. I'm currently sitting in my basement at a tea party station that my children have set up. So <laughs> running away from the lawnmower sound. Yes. I'm like, it's <laughs> December. Why are people mowing their lawn? But I think they're doing it so they can suck up the leaves. True. That's true. You know that lawnmower sound is part of the white noise sound for babies? <laughs> Not ideal for Bell Sounds podcast. <laughs> Maybe we should add this like white sound pod. It'd be like a background sound to calm people. Put everyone to sleep. So holidays are coming up. What are your plans for the holidays, Jen? Oh, you know, we usually get together. So I have little girls. They're five and six. And we really do it up. We do our Christmas tree and then our travel ornaments that I mentioned in the season premiere. And we have a bunch to add this year because we just got back from an- another trip to Arizona, which was oh, super fun. Yes, you share pictures. Oh my gosh, that's so fun. I love the picture of your daughters doing some meditation on like the mountain facing the sunset. It was amazing. Well, if you've ever been to Sedona, there's all these vortexes there and it's supposed to have this like amazing energy and out of nowhere we're hiking and the girls were like, I need to meditate right now. My mind was blown. I was like, I don't know who these kids are, but I'm here for it. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, So we'll do that. How about you? What are you doing for the holidays? So I am uh, hosting a small gathering with my friends. I'm calling it, it's because it's in December, so I'm calling it a belated Friendigenous Day holiday party. And I'm going to do it as like a murder mystery themed party. Yeah, so I bought this murder mystery game and I'm going to have them dress up as the characters and come in and try to figure out who the killer is. So it's going to be very fun. And we're all vaccinated and we're all boosted. So should be a good party. I'm excited about it. My friends are excited about it. Wow, that sounds so fun. Is it one of those things where everyone gets an envelope and nobody knows who the killer is? You just have to ask your part. And you have to like ask questions and stuff like that. It is so fun. So yeah, that's going to be awesome. Oh, that's so cool. We're excited. And then uh, I'm going to visit my family during the end of December. My niece and my nephew's birthday are both at the end of December. My niece's birthday is December 24th. And my Mm. nephew's birthday is December 28th, I think, if I got that right. So I'm going to celebrate their birthdays with them at the end of December. So that's going to be fun. Well, um, so today... Our topic is very interesting. We had an episode recorded in the past about celiac disease and how to diagnose celiac disease. And we talked about management of celiac disease. But today's episode, we're going to talk about very controversial things and advances in management of celiac disease with Dr. Edwin Liu from Colorado. Oh, it was so great to meet him. Dr. Edwin Liu is at Children's Hospital Colorado. He is the director for their Colorado Center for Celiac Disease, and he's actually a Taplin Endowed Chair for Celiac Disease there as well. Dr. Liu is also a professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado, and he was just a really nice guy to talk to. He took all of our difficult questions in stride and just went with it. Yeah, he's amazing and he's super smart and he answers a lot of tough questions that we asked him. So it's going to be a very, very great episode. I recommend listening to the end. And don't forget to claim your CME once you made it to the end. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Once you made it to the end. (laughs) Well, shall we? Yes. On On to to the show.
Welcome, Dr. Ed Liu to Bowel Sounds. Very excited to have you to talk about celiac disease. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. We are going to start with our first question. And a lot of our guests find it as a challenging question. For our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Yeah, it, it is a challenging question. And I'd say that my family's from Taiwan. I have an older brother and sister. And we were raised by a single mom. I grew up in Pittsburgh. And I'm a pediatric gastrologist. And I'm currently there director of the Colorado Center for Celiac Disease. From Pittsburgh to Colorado. Yeah. I really want to visit. I feel like it would be such a cool place to be. Yeah. Colorado is a nice place. Sometimes I say the mountains and the rivers here are least on me because I don't get out as much as I'd like to. Uh When Tamara and I come visit, you can take us to one of the mountains. We'll go Yeah, the Rocky Mountains. We only want mountains that are Rockies. So um, another question to get to know you a little bit more. Tell us about a book, podcast, TV show or movie that you read, listened to, or watched recently that you recommend or a hobby that you like to do? I love to fly fish. Oh, wow. I spend a lot of time doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So there's my two hobbies. Is uh, that Kepoline? Uh, no, no. It, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, is, uh, it's like submission grappling. Yeah, I've been doing that for about 10 or 12 years. Wow. I tried MMA for one month and then I was like, okay, I'm done. Yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. Nobody wants to be punched in the face. I actually have a black belt in Taekwondo, but I haven't practiced in a long time. So maybe that's something to get back into. Wow, Jen, you continue to amaze me. And things you do before medicine. Yeah, jiu-jitsu is very fun. And you've been doing it for 10 years? Yeah, during 12 years. I don't know how long I've been doing it. But yeah, that, that's my way of relaxing and spend a lot of time doing this and uh, spend a lot of money because our gym memberships are expensive. It's true. And are there belts in jiu-jitsu? Yeah, there are some belts. You know, it takes a while. It takes probably about 10 years to get a black belt. Wow. And yeah, you put in your time with this. So our topic today is about celiac disease. And you and I share interest in treating patients with celiac disease. And we actually never met in person, but we met on a lot of Zoom meetings. <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about how you developed your interest in celiac disease. As a fellow, this is when I obviously developed my interest in celiac disease. It's interesting because I think a lot of this is based on young mentors, right? And, and Hoffenberg, one of the old school guys in celiac disease, was the one who really brought me into this field. And I started actually doing research in type 1 diabetes. And I started working in a lab of George Eisenbarth at the Barbara Davis Center, working with mice and learning about immunology and autoimmunity. And so... From there, we always knew that we switched to celiac disease, but this is how I got into it. We're starting with type 1 diabetes and, and then starting to look at the link between diabetes and celiac disease. That's a really nice transition from diabetes to celiac disease. And for any of our listeners, we actually have a prior episode about celiac disease where we interviewed one of my mentors, Dr. Ivor Hill. And in that episode, we really talk about the diagnosis and management. But today... Dr. Lou, we have you on the hot seat because we're going to talk a little bit about controversies and challenges that we may face when diagnosing and managing patients with celiac disease. Oh, sorry about that. Actually, <laughs> hot seat. I prefer that because I can give you my opinion uh-huh. because these are controversial, right? Which means we don't have as much data to support a lot of what we're doing. So giving you my opinion and my biases is actually easier. Oh, that's probably true. Um, Starting with a scenario that we'll often see in clinics. So say we have a patient that has a normal TTG IgA and a normal IgA, but they receive their serologies such as like the EMA or the DGP IgG or IgA or even the tissue transglutaminase IgG, which a lot of us don't send, but maybe they will have received by their primary care doctor prior to coming to our clinic. So what do you do in this scenario? So we have normal tissue transglutaminase, elevated other serologic markers. What do you do? I think in pediatric GI, we love the TPG IGA, right? That's the one we live and die with. We do have to recognize some limitations in the test. It's not perfect, but it really is the best screening test, right? It's highly sensitive, although it's less specific. So in these situations where TPG is negative, but other serologies are positive, it does make you think twice about whether or not this, rate, this may really be celiac disease. And so oftentimes... I'd want to repeat it again. And I think maybe the one thing which may be a recurring theme is when we talk about these controversies, 
is that for the most part, there in my mind, like there's not a huge rush oftentimes to diagnose celiac disease and, and, unless the patient's really symptomatic. And if they're symptomatic, then you're going to do a biopsy anyway to look for other things. And so I think a lot of these times you have the luxury, I would hope, of being able to follow them over a period of time before you decide whether or not you want to really chase the celiac But those would be some of the you know, cases that are like less straightforward, such as in this one where the serologies don't quite make sense, right? And then how long would you wait? So would it be like you, you do it right away? Would you wait three months, six months? Yeah, certainly. By the time you end up seeing them, there's three and a couple of months that's passed. So you may just repeat it right then. But if you get a phone call from the PCP who just got those results, I'd wait about three months. You know, granted, if the patient's really symptomatic, then you would do it sooner. And you might just think that maybe there was something wrong with the TVK test at the time, or there was something wrong with the other test at the time. So it just depends. But I think typically about three months is when I would wait in between to see what happens. And I think this is because we also know that some of these autoantibodies tend to be a little shickle, right? Depending on the state of the patient, whether there's active inflammation or, right. or infections or other kind of things. Just to clarify, would you repeat all of them? Or just the tissue transglutaminates? You know, um, again, we live and die by the TPG-IgA, but it's true that people can have celiac disease when other serologies are positive. So especially the deaminated gliadin peptides, and this one would be specifically the DGP-IgG, okay? The DGP-IgA really isn't a good test. And so if the DGP-IgG is positive, but the TPG-IgA sorry for all the letters, is negative. I don't think you can entirely rule out celiac disease. And this is, this is related to that notion based on some prior publications, for example, especially in the younger kids, where they may be DGP-IgG positive, but TPG-IgA negative. And sometimes they can have celiac disease because those antibodies may be positive. What I'm hearing is what you would repeat is the TTG, IgA, and maybe DGP, IgG. If the BGP, IgG were the one that was was positive, that one's probably the second best test to screen. Okay. So yes, the TTG, IgA, and the BGP, IgG in that order. Now the EMA is a good test, right? In fact, it's the most specific test for celiac disease, but it would be highly unusual, right? To have... In EMA, that's positive while the TPG is negative, right? Because EMA positivity basically means very high TPG positivity. You decide to repeat these tests. And one of my questions is, do you do a gluten challenge before you repeat these tests? And also, uh, how would you do a gluten challenge either prior to repeating these tests if you would or prior to a endoscopy with biopsies? Yeah, yeah. I think this is all based on the fact that the patient's eating gluten at a normal, whatever normal is, a normal amount. But it's true that the tendency is that, I don't know why that is, especially in Colorado, as soon as someone's antibody positive, they're already like jumping to the diagnosis of celiac disease and they're already starting to gluten pre-diet. So yes, we would encourage them to continue gluten, okay? And push the gluten. I mean, I think anytime we're wondering about celiac disease in order to get a good test, they have to be included. Yes, I tell them to continue the diet, the regular diet. Okay. Do you tell them to take more than usual? That's hard because yeah. the reality is, you know, I, I think for a lot of parents, when they think that their child might have celiac disease mm-hmm. and we tell them to keep eating gluten, they feel like you're poisoning their child. You know right. I mean? And so um, this is why we try to get kids seen as soon as we can, as soon as there's any indication. Right. Or suggestion of celiac disease. And so um, at our center, we try to see these kids within three weeks of initial positivity, just because we're going to assume that they're already starting to either intentionally or unintentionally restrict the gluten. And so we try to catch them as soon as we can. That's true. And do you give them any specific gram goal? Like you need to eat this much gluten, 10 goldfish. I don't know. Or like, do you give them some sort of target? I, I don't. I, I, I'm never fond of numbers like that. I mean, it's so hard to translate in real life, right? And so we, we tell them just to continue their diet as usual, make sure there's gluten. But if they've been gluten-free already, then in general, I'd say, okay, about 10 grams, right? And when is that though? Okay, you know, it's going to be like, oh, maybe two or three slices of bread or at least one serving of gluten a day. And if we did have to push the gluten in terms of a gluten challenge, I always say the more gluten, the better. Okay. And the longer you do the challenge, the better. 
Okay, that's going to really maximize your likelihood of treaties with business when you eventually do biopsy. I mean, that's a good point because this is pretty patchy too, right? So how many biopsies do you recommend? Do you separate the bottles from the distal duodenum or the, or the duodenum and the bulb? And do you also recommend doing CD3 staining on these biopsies? Yeah, you know, we, we kind of go by the recommendations that this point, the guidelines, and we do take multiple biopsies, right? Like in EOE, you want to try to catch it with as many biopsies as you can. So we're, we're taking four biopsies from the duodenum, and in a separate container, we take at least two biopsies from the bulb, right? Because we know that CO disease sometimes can be apparent only in the bulb. In, in reality, the pathologists will tell you that you don't need to separate those containers that they can tell the difference between the bulb and further down the door on them, but we still break those up just in case. I know that's so hard because the biopsy bottles, at least my understanding is they cost anywhere from 800 mm, to to $1,000 per bottle. Yeah. So that's why I have a hard time like separating, separating. them sometimes, yeah. but that's what we do as well. Although they'll tell me also that like after a certain number of biopsies, which we're actually going to exceed, like it's, it's not going to make a difference for them in terms of the cost, at least imparted to the patient. Yeah. But it's true. It's still going to be a cost overall. So another scenario, you scope the patient who has an elevated TTG IgA. Um, you do two to four biopsies from the bulb. You do four to six biopsies from the distal duodenum. And they come back normal. So elevated TTGIJ, normal biopsies. How would you approach this patient? This is exactly the situation we tried to avoid, right? Yes. Um, you know, which is why, you know, like when you do a gluten challenge and you push it as much gluten as long as possible, there's not a rush to biopsy someone as soon as they're TBG positive and you've got time to follow this, you know, and make sure that these antibodies are persistent, you know, and see if these antibodies are higher. But the reality is sometimes we do run into that situation, right? Then um, PPT positivity of the viruses are normal. And this is technically what we call potential celiac. And I hate that term, potential celiac, because I think we're all potential celiacs, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it doesn't really help, but, you know, it, it basically means that you, know, you can't really confirm the diagnosis. I mean, we do the biopsies to confirm, right? Biopsies to confirm, right? And in the situation, these kids can go in any number of directions, right? Typically, some kids who have TTG positivity, but the viruses are normal, they may be transient. We do see transient PPG autoantibodies, right? Then you give them, give them enough time and these antibodies will just start to go away. And especially in the kids, for example, with type 1 diabetes, right? When they have new onset diabetes, they're already in an inflammatory state and their TPG antibodies may be positive initially, but then... You know, they've got diabetes to deal with and you're not going to be focusing on celiac disease at the time. And when you follow this up later on, those antibodies can result. So sometimes they could be transient. Sometimes these antibodies may persist, but they never develop celiac disease. Okay? Meaning the biopsies never change. And sometimes they can go on to progress the full celiac disease. And so in this situation, a lot of this depends on symptoms. Okay, I think symptoms has to be a major part of this because when you're dealing with this uncertainty, patient preference is very important. You're not going to get someone to commit to a gluten-free diet if they don't want to do it, especially if they're not having symptoms. And so in this situation, I think it takes a lot of conversation with the family. If they're not that symptomatic, my preference would be to watch and wait, okay, and not put them on a gluten-free diet. And repeat those antibodies in six months, okay? And sooner if they have symptoms. And then we decide what we need to do from there. And then um, if those antibodies aren't really going anywhere, we may repeat it again in a year and continue to follow this. But at some point, if those antibodies haven't gone away, they're persistent, we get symptoms, then we would talk about another biopsy. A follow-up question on that. Would you ever ask your pathologist to stain for CD3? Yeah, thanks. That was the part I didn't answer from the first, first round. But no, we actually don't. And one of my pathologists told me that when we did the MARSH criteria, it didn't include CD3 staining first. And it was just based on H&E. And so we would be sort of, you know, maybe artificially elevating our intraepithelial count by doing staining. And so we're not routinely doing CD3 staining um, on our biopsies. We're not routinely, for example, doing PTG deposits, as some places in Europe may do, and they think that's going to be more specific for celiac disease. Um, you know, and, um, so you just do a regular agent. 
So say we have a really elevated tissue transglutaminase. Can you talk about the new criteria for non-biopsy diagnosis? And do you ever use this as a diagnostic tool? Because there's that debate, right? The European guidelines, the North American guidelines. Yes, exactly. You know, um, I, I think, you know, I, I always say like the higher the TPG, the more likely you're truly dealing with celiac disease, right? And of course, sometimes you, you have a super high PPG that just never budges, especially when patients are in a gluten-free diet that never goes away after a couple of years. And in reality, there, there could be a laboratory problem. Like then you may be getting a false signal from something else in the blood that's binding to your plate and doing this. And so sometimes I get a little suspicious by this, but in, in general, yes, a very high TPG is going to be very suggestive of celiac disease. But again, it's not perfect, which is why we like to use the EMA as a secondary test because it's much more specific. So the aspirin, the European guidelines, do say that you can make a diagnosis of celiac disease based just on serology alone, okay? And the criteria at this point are you have to have a very high TPG, and specifically that means 10 times the upper limit of normal, okay? And on a separate blood draw, in case like the blood got based up, you have to be EMA positive. Okay, and just with these two things alone, you can make a diagnosis of celiac disease with 99 plus percent certainty. Now, in the past, they used to require like HLA compatibility, meaning you have to have HLA DQ2 or DQ8, where a celiac disease compatibility, and you'd have to have symptoms. But when estrogen revised the criteria, they took out the HLA because it wasn't helping, it wasn't contributing anything. And they took out symptoms because symptoms is very subjective and it also wasn't a that people can have celiac disease even without. So this, these are the European guidelines and this hasn't been formally adopted yet by NASPGIN, although I'd say that our celiac disease, especially just group, is starting to work on this and with this. And the reason for this is because it's possible that kids in North America may be different in celiac disease phenotype compared to the European kids. It also because the TPG assays that are used in Europe are different in many ways. They're different tests compared to the ones we use in North America. And so um, Europeans chose a ten, tenfold upper limit of normal so that it would be all encompassing with all the assays that they've used. Okay. And we would expect that the North American assays would function the same. Well, we don't know for sure. So um, technically, it's not something we do in North America. Okay. Sorry for the long answer. But yes, I do. I do use the serologic criteria at times with suits my purposes. And we were kind of uh, using it more during the pandemic when access to endoscopy was limited. And so we won't delay the diagnosis of these patients. And our celiac disease SIG is working really hard on getting those um, recommendations out there. Are you on the SIG? Are you on the SIG? Of course I am. We're like teammates here. We are. You're uh, you're the odd one out, Jen. I'm sorry. I'm celiac sig. And I do want to underscore that a separate sample for EMA, not the same sample. So elevated TTG IgA and a separate sample with a positive EMA. So let's talk about the value of HLA typing and genetic testings because a lot of pediatricians send them, a lot of families ask for them. Do you ever send them and do they help you in the diagnosis of celiac disease? I rarely send HLA typing on our patients. Just for the listeners, in case you don't know, like the two major genes for celiac disease are HLA DQ2 and DQ8. And those are the ones we're looking for. But there's, you can also have celiac disease when you have like half the DQ heterodimer, but it's not as common. And majority of folks here have DQ2, like probably 90% plus, and then the rest are DQ8. And if you don't have DQ2 or DQ8 or any celiac compatible gene, then the chances of actually getting celiac disease is probably less than 1%, maybe a little bit higher in North America. But again, like 40% of the population has DQ2 or DQ8. So these genes are pretty much necessary, but not sufficient for celiac disease to develop. Having said that, I don't find it very helpful most of the time. It doesn't help us in the diagnosis of celiac disease. And it's oftentimes misinterpreted because someone finds out that they are a, a positive team for celiac disease and they think that they automatically have it. And, and so the times we use it are when we're trying to, let's say, rule out celiac disease. And so we have to find that they don't have either gene that we can tell them that the likelihood of actually having celiac disease 
is extremely low. And this could also apply in terms of screening strategies for people who are at risk for serial disease. And so speaking of screening, if I have a patient who has celiac disease or I have a patient whose parent has celiac disease, what are the recommendations for screening family members and how frequently do you screen? Yeah, so, you know, Masvigan recommends that you screen people who have a risk for celiac disease, and that's for sure. It includes those who have a first-screen relative of celiac disease, but that also includes people who have like autoimmune thyroid disease and type 1 diabetes, juvenile atheic arthritis, autoimmune liver disease, Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, Williams syndrome. So those are the folks that are to be screened in, in periodically for celiac disease. So when there is a patient that we see with celiac disease, we do recommend that the first three relatives also get screened for celiac disease. And just to clarify, the screening that you would recommend is that tissue transglutaminase, not the whole panel. Yes, exactly. We call them like some PPG IgA. And if I told you IgA, it hasn't been sent before, do that to rule out uh, IgA deficiency. So, and then is this a one and done? Or do you screen them like intermittently or every year? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. No, and I, I always say, like, you know, no one's born with celiac disease, right? You're born with the genes of which are at risk, right? And so if you have a risk factor, celiac disease can develop at any time, right? And so again recommendations are that you screen starting at age three and people who have a genetic risk. And they say it codes periodically. Okay, for screening. And, and so that, that's something that's open to education. So however we do it, we, I used to say, you know, screen every year because there's a risk. But in reality, most families aren't going to put their kids through that and get the blood drawn every year unless they're very worried. That's another topic in terms of like how worried you get about getting serious disease and the hypervigilance around this. But there's also a lot you know, in the terms of trying to design effective screening strategies. You have to understand like the natural history of these antibodies. Right, like how quickly do these antibodies develop? When does celiac disease occur? And through our her research, she followed thousands of kids who are, you know, who have HLA DQ2 and DQ8. So we know that they've got a risk and we follow them with blood testing like yearly for the development of celiac antibodies. We see that when kids do develop celiac disease, they develop it very quickly, like very early in life, certainly within the first 10 years. And certainly within the first five years, majority of kids start getting it. So it happens aggressively very early. And then after age 10, new cases of celiac disease seems to slow down. And there's another study, I think, that, that suggested that after age 12, they weren't seeing many new cases. So that informs us in terms of how often should it be screening. And you could say, for example, in kids who have a genetic risk, maybe we want to screen a little bit more frequently within the first five years. And then from ages five to 10, we slow it down. And then after age 10, you really slow down. And this is also not to say that adults can develop celiac disease, right? We know that adults can be negative with testing initially, and then later on, they can be positive. It's just that I think when celiac disease occurs in most people, they probably had it since they were kids. So I want to go back to that HLA typing for a second, because you said that if they, if they don't have that gene, then that's good, right? They're not at risk. So is there any utility in using that for screening in the family members? Yeah, there, there may be. I think there should be some sort of cost study uh, designed to look at at what point would it be useful to do HLA testing first and eliminate the 60%, no, maybe less if there's a family history because the genes are bound, uh, that percent of people who don't have the genes, so they need repeated TPG testing. And, you know, what, where's the inflection point of serial TPG testing going to be where it's no longer useful? And how many times should a child be screened for celiac disease during the first 10 years? I don't know. I mean, I think you can say every year or every two or three years, but their family's going to do it. You know, when they want it, oftentimes it may be less frequent, maybe five. Right. So this is a very interesting topic, screening, prediction and prevention. And with screening patients, there's a possibility of diagnosing patients with celiac disease when they're asymptomatic. And sometimes that's hard for families or patients to say, OK, but I don't have symptoms. Why do I need to be on this gluten free diet? So what is your approach uh, to that? Do you put them on a gluten free diet? Is it a good thing, a bad thing to screen them? Does this cause hypervigilance? Can you take us through that? Yeah, that's that's a hard topic, right? Asymptomatic celiac disease is something that we see. And maybe the first thing is, how do you define asymptomatic? Because I, I think 
a lot of people probably do have some degree of symptoms, whether or not it's actually related to ceiling disease is a different matter. And people can have self-clinical symptoms, right? So yes, it's true that people can completely like be asymptomatic, nothing at all when you scream. Um, you know, maybe you say about a third and a third will probably have subclinical symptoms where if they have some stuff, they wouldn't already be seeing a doctor from it. And then you have folks about a third who actually have symptoms. You'll get everyone who's been diagnosed and picked up with celiac. Um, the asymptomatic ones are tough, right? And I, I think a lot of people, you know, originally don't understand that. Yes, you can have celiac disease with all the villainous atrophy or your antibodies and all and you processed even without symptoms, right? I mean, I think when you talk about, hey, celiac disease can happen in anybody and we do kind of, you have a mass screening study. And one of the main reasons why people don't opt for free celiac testing is because there's no one in my family that has celiac disease and I don't have symptoms. And the reality is, you can still have celiac disease without symptoms, and the majority of people who have celiac disease actually don't have a known family history. So, you know, when it comes to symptoms, that's that is challenging. I think we tend to see asymptomatic celiac disease um, most often in the kids who also have type one diabetes. Right? I mean, it's basically the screened population, right? Those with family members. Those with type 1 diabetes are the major screen populations. You know, it, it's unfortunate because I think the kids with type 1 diabetes are the ones that most often are really asymptomatic, completely asymptomatic. And so it's just a good thing or bad thing. Well, you know, they're dealing with diabetes and now you're sort of imposing a gluten-free diet on them. And that's really hard. So we do need to think carefully about whether or not, you know, for example, just doing screening as recommended, like begin, or doing like in the future, what I think we may be headed to is like mass screening, you know, we need to really look at the potential risks and benefits of this. You're asymptomatic. I mean, gluten-free diet is not easy, right? If you're having symptoms, I think it's easier to remove the things that make you feel bad, especially for a little kid. But if you're not having symptoms, that's really challenging if your favorite foods all have gluten. That's true. But uh, also another thing is um, I, I sometimes see patients with uh, headaches or joint pains, or honestly, we don't know if those are um, uh, true symptoms. The symptoms that we think for celiac disease is gastrointestinal symptoms, but we know it's an autoimmune condition as well. And honestly, these patients are screened by their pediatrician. They develop, they have celiac disease. They go on a free, a gluten-free diet, and these um, extra intestinal symptoms get better. So I'm not sure what your experience with that is. But another thing that I kind of tell families is growth is an important thing. Um, so they won't reach their potential growth or there's a possibility they don't reach their potential growth if they're not on a gluten-free diet. And fertility, especially for a female, that if you have celiac disease and you, even if you're asymptomatic, it can affect fertility. And then there's long-term problems with not being on gluten-free diets. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And these are the conversations we have with these kids, right? And so they may not be having immediate symptoms or they may be having unrecognized symptoms. And oftentimes, like you said, those are extra-intestinal, right? But beyond that, what we're looking at is really the prevention of complications. Right. And that for a kid, that's like an adult mentality is I'm going to do this for my health to prevent something that's going to potentially happen 10, 20 years down the line. You know, it's um, those are important issues, like like you said, right. And especially in kids who have type 1 diabetes, right. Like when you have coexisting diabetes and celiac disease, you're actually compounding your risk of metabolic bone disease. You're compounding your risk of microvascular complications. And there may be, you know, like sort of like more anecdotal data still have harder blood sugar control. But otherwise, yeah, like you said, to be honest, you process the growth, the increased risk of worse pregnancy outcomes, neurologic complications, all those things down the line are real risks. We just don't know which asymptomatic person with celiac disease is going to develop these complications and which ones will not. Right. Uh, so. That's the hard part, but I think, you know, if you were to ask me how would I manage these kids who are who have asymptomatic celiac disease, well, if we screen them and we find it, we recommend treatment. Mm -hmm. We think that they need to do it. And of course, like I said, there, there's not a rush because I think for the most part, when you diagnose celiac disease in childhood, in terms of long-term complications, they're catching it. Yes. They're going to have to be gluten-free. We would recommend they get treatment. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about diet. Now we're going to have a whole episode that is dedicated to diet, but we do want to ask you one particular question. So when you're starting someone on a gluten-free diet, you can buy oatmeal that's from certified gluten-free, or you can just get oats. (laughs) What do you recommend for these patients? There's a cost difference here between the two. Yeah, I think it should always be certified gluten-free. You know, the, the risk of contamination of oats with wheat products and gluten in general is so high based on how it's all harvested that they need to be certified gluten-free. And some folks, when they teach the gluten-free diet, they recommend avoiding oats altogether. Yeah. And that's hard. Our group, we allow them to have oats from the start. And if they can do that with children, can consider reading yeah. So you, you don't say for the first three months or until your TTG ID normalizes, avoid oats. Is that correct? No. Correct. Okay. We let them back. Yes. You diagnose a patient with celiac. You put them on a gluten-free diet. How frequently do you monitor TTG IGA? When do you expect it to normalize? And do you ever, if it's normal, within a year, two years, three years, it continues to be normal? Do you ever consider rebiopsying to see if there's mucosal healing similar to IBD? Yeah, those are great questions. I, the, the thought about how we manage this, our data is starting to change. Like I said, in pediatrics, we live and die by the TPG antibody, but in adult celiac disease, they don't rely on it as much. And maybe the first thing I'd say is that the antibody is not like FDA approved for the monitoring of celiac disease. Okay. And in general, adults heal like poorly compared to kids, right? And I think like the adult healing rates I've seen quoted as roughly about 50%, maybe 60% overall. Whereas in kids, the healing rates historically has been quoted to be 95 plus percent. Okay. And when you're on a gluten-free diet, TPG antibodies are going to decrease regardless, right? So it doesn't correlate very well with adults because I think they don't always go in the same directions. But in kids, we know kids heal well. We know TPG antibodies decrease on a gluten-free diet. So we feel like they're measuring the same thing, right? So when we follow these patients with new diagnosis of serious disease, typically we'll repeat the TPG in about 30 months. Okay, that's when we like to see them back again for reassessment. Meet our dietitian, meet our celiac psychologist, and recheck her again. Yeah, the vitamin D levels that were at normal before. Uh, and three months may be too early in some cases to see a decrease, especially when the PPG is originally quoted as being greater than whatever. But in general, we do see a decrease in the antibodies. And I think the families like that a lot. Yeah, I agree. You know, because they may or may not see symptom improvement, but it gives them a lot of positive reinforcement when they see those antibodies coming down that they need as much encouragement and positive reinforcement as they chair, right? Now, the problem is if the antibodies don't go down, then you have to explain that away because I wouldn't be too worried if it doesn't decrease that much. True. Okay. Um, but in general, like those antibodies can take up to two years to fully resolve depending on how sensitive your test is and how high those antibody levels are, but a lot of times it can decrease much faster like within a year. And do you ever repeat biopsies? Not typically, right? I mean, I think for now, we're assuming that these kids have healed and we don't have, to be honest, we don't have great ways to monitor celiacs, right? I mean, the only ways we can do this is by following the PPG antibodies for what it's worth, right? Yes, they're going to go down on the gluten-free diet, but they're not super sensitive, meaning let's say at somebody's TPG antibody negative, and then they ate an entire meal today, and then we check the antibodies tomorrow, we're not going to see a bump in those antibodies, right? And right. the films need to understand that. That's not the way it works. But we follow the TPG antibody test. We follow symptoms if they're present and see if there's an improvement in symptoms and see what kind of symptoms that they have when they're exposed, like what are their typical symptoms. And the third way is by the dietitian assessment. I think that's probably the most valuable tool you have is the dietitian assessment, even though it's not very standardized. So we're relying on those things and we're not typically repeating biopsies, but there are some groups out there that are starting to look at this. So I think it's a very important issue because I think the management of CF disease is different today than it was, you know, 20 years ago or even longer. And it's an important question to ask. And this is interesting because in Europe, they're moving away from biopsies. They're having serologic criteria, they're taking away the biopsies. If you can meet them, and in North America, we're starting to examine whether or not we need to be repeating 
perhaps these in some of these kids what they do in adults, right? And just to clarify, repeating the biopsies, if the patients are asymptomatic and their levels are completely normal and repeating it just to document mucosal healing. But if they're symptomatic or the levels don't go down within a year, two years, you would repeat the biopsies? Yeah. So when would you repeat biopsies, right? And I think I'd give it longer than two years because those antibodies can persist like this. And sometimes we've seen it go down very slowly, like even longer than two years. And so if they're still having symptoms, if their antibodies are persistent after two years, unless they're very symptomatic, then we're typically not going to repeat the biopsies. But that's another issue too, is what do you do with a patient that continues to have symptoms, right? Um, when they're gluten-free, they're, they're managing their celiac disease. And in fact, that's probably one of the one of the biggest reasons for second opinions and their center is I've got celiac disease, but I still have symptoms, right? You know, and a lot of these patients become very hypervigilant, right? And you know that there's no gluten in their diet, and yet they're still having symptoms, and they continue to blame it on gluten. And I think there's a bit of um, you know, it's 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 a way, it's the way we think, and we're led along that chain pathway to say that this is gluten. But in reality, that may not be the case, right? Not everything right. is related to gluten exposure and seeing it. There are a lot of how disease as a background that's not an issue and have other problems. And I think that's most of the time when they went into that situation as a second opinion, their symptoms aren't due to celiac disease, right? It's due to something else. IBD patients that have functional component, their IBD is well healed, but they still have abdominal symptoms and tell patients you can have IBD and functional abdominal pain. And it's the same for celiac disease. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think that's a good reminder for all of us because never keep your differential just pinpointed on a single thing. You always have to think, could there be something else going on as well? So I did want to talk a little bit about some other ways that we may measure response to treatment here. And so there are reported new modalities such as urine or stool. Are there any, should we put any reliance on this? In general, not. You can measure these gluten, immunogenic peptides in the urine stool, and these like coming home kits that you can do that they've marketed this. I'm not sure how often people use it. We have not found any great utility in these tests. Now, granted, these tests are directly measuring gluten exposure, right? Which would be great because you know that they're getting expensive gluten. Um, the urine tests aren't very sensitive, so you have to be exposed to like a large amount. You have to be just overtly eating gluten, right? Mm-hmm. You'll be drinking it in your urine. And the stool is much more sensitive, okay? It can detect up to 50 milligrams, maybe even more, depending on the kind of test. Um, but I think, yeah, the thing is, like, there could be people who are gluten-free and doing their best and doing well, and you may still pick up, you know, gluten in the sensitive stool test. And now, what have you done? And now, you, you have you just treated a bunch of uncertainty and a lack of confidence in how parents are treating their children and, you know, when they're doing well in every other way. and so. Sometimes it may be information that we don't know what to do with. Now, the other problem with these tests is that they're like spot tests, right? I mean, the urine, I think in 12 hours of gluten exposure, you'd be able to detect it, right? You get the cancer window where they're going to pee it out. And the stool test is something right within like three to five days when it comes out in the stool and there's a chance that you may miss it. So sometimes in terms of how well those test performs depends on whether or not you're actually catching the actual gluten passing through the sample, right? And then what about IL-2? So there was that recent study that talks about IL-2 correlating with symptoms. Is that a reliable marker? Oh, we hope so in the future. It's just so interesting. I mean, it's something that looks so obvious, right? I mean, check IL-2 in a blend um, that the, uh, the group in Australia really discovered, right? And I think one of the main things is you have to have a very sensitive passing to measure the IL-2. That's the first thing. Um, and yeah, it's so the, the background to the IL-2 is that one way that you can measure this, and this is tested in adults, and we're going to be looking at testing this more in kids, is that you have to be gluten-free first, okay? That the, mm. the immune system has to be calm first so they can really properly boost when you get exposed to gluten, okay? And so gluten-free, you get showered with gluten, and then within four hours, you'd expect a spike in the IL-2 response, okay? And the higher the IL-2, the more likely you're going to have symptoms, especially like vomiting, okay? So there's a nice right. correlation between that. 
And it turns out that people with CF disease who get exposed to this gluten challenge will have an IL-2 spike. And people without celiac disease who are gluten-free will not have that spike in the IL-2. So this has started to help us distinguish the difference between people who are gluten-free with celiac disease versus people who are gluten-free who don't really have celiac disease. And so we need to get this validated in kids. And I hope someday that this will be another way to diagnose celiac disease, especially in that problem of kids who are already gluten-free, where you have no idea if they have celiac disease or not, because you can't properly assess them. So we're hoping, I mean, you know, Bob Anderson told me in the past that he thinks that celiac disease in the future will be defined immunologically, right? With a test like this, right? With immune definitions rather than histologically, because we know that there's so many problems with the histologic diagnosis of celiac disease in terms of actually diagnosis, the subjectivity of biopsies and orientation of the line. And speaking about the future, any future therapies that are emerging out there to maybe treat? Because we don't have any medications right now or any therapies except for a gluten-free diet, which might be the least side effect kind of therapy. But are there any future therapies that are in studies? And is IL-2 one of those kind of targeted therapies? There's a lot of drugs out there right now that they study. Right? I mean, for all of this with COPD disease, it's being one of the most understood autoimmune diseases out there. I mean, at the molecular level, we understand so much about this. It's just in some ways, the gluten-free diet has impeded progress of seeking new therapies right? for a very, very long time. It's so good to see now that like um, with the past 10 years, the narrative had changed to say like, hey, the gluten-free diet is not enough. There's a lot of people that aren't healing large people that still suffer from celiac disease, even though they're gluten-free. And so this has really, I think, driven a progress towards seeking drug therapies. And there's a lot out there. So pretty much like through every pathway that celiac disease goes through at the molecular level, at the intellectual level, there is a drug being studied to target that part of the pathway. I, I'm always probably most excited about the safest yeah. ones that you think would be the safest ones, like almost like quotes, like the gluten pill which may or may not be a pill, you know, but like an enzyme that could digest the gluten fragments into individual amino acids. Right. So can't activate the immune system. That'd be cool. Like, like lactate. Yeah, lactose will harm you, okay, whereas gluten could harm you. So right. And we wish it would be that powerful where you can eat as much gluten as you want, right? And you take the pill and, and you won't have symptoms, it won't cause injury, but in reality, you may still have to be gluten-free but you take the medicine that would help digest any residual gluten in your diet. And that would help with a lot in terms of quality of life, peace of mind, and also we would expect safety and symptoms, right? That's why there's so many out there that are being studied, including joints are always looking for like cure for celiacs by inducing a new tolerance, by targeting critical gluten peptides that we know are really important in the activation of celiacs. And unfortunately, right, the ones that did that, did the gluten peptides as allergy shots, right? Unfortunately, that trial failed, but now they're looking at those kinds of peptides coded in nanoparticles to try to modulate the immune system. So there's a lot of really cool ways where celiac disease is being studied for drug development. Come and future Bell Sounds episodes to follow. <laughs> And I always tell my patients, we don't know what's coming up in five years or 10 years. So for now, for the foreseen future, you have to be on a gluten-free diet, but there's hope for the future. Yes. For some of the younger kids, you can tell them that definitely within their lifetime, there's going to be a drug. I mean, I will say the gluten-free options have gotten so much better in the last five or 10 years. And so it's really, at least I don't eat a lot of gluten just in general. And like, it's pretty become easier to do so in the last few years. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so, you know, definitely thank you so much for spending this time with us. We are really looking forward to meeting you in person at a future meeting, yes. especially I'm sure tomorrow. I like, am. <laughs> Me too. Everything's just been online for these past few years, yes. right? <laughs> really has been. And thinking back on your career, which has been so impressive and so great to hear you talk about your passion in celiac disease, but just in general, like what has been the most valuable advice that you have received and what advice do you have for our listeners? You know, there's a lot of things. So I think choosing your mentor is so important because I think a lot of times when you find a role model, you find a mentor, that's going to be the direction you end up going. 
And that certainly was the case for me in terms of going into gastroenterology and then going into celiac disease. But maybe that in terms of patient care, probably the best advice I got was from an adolescent medicine doctor. He said, never work harder than your patient. Oh, And I think in many ways that's very true, especially when you deal with teenagers. Yes. And you deal with a lot of functional disorders. Yeah. Yeah. If if they're not calling you and complaining, then don't okay. <laughs> poke the pear. <laughs> yes. you know, they have to buy in, they have to put in work too. You're true. the one spreading over them, then that's less for them to worry about in terms of your own self-care. That's true. So once again, Ed, it's been great having you on this podcast. Any final words for our listeners? I guess for the listeners that aren't in celiac disease research or trainees, I'd say celiac disease is a great disease to study. I mean, there is more money in this disease now than ever. We have a really great young group of researchers, very dynamic. And, you know, I think it's our considered joining the celiac disease research community. Because I think it's a wonderful group. Right? Don't all go to motility. <laughs> or inflammatory bowel disease. Or IVD. Um, Peter is going to be mad at me because in the past, in the previous episode, he was like, oh, come into motility. So consider celiac disease. <laughs> yes, yes. We would love more researchers uh, and people to join. Yes. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Oh, no, wait. Thanks for coming to me. Yeah. The... Dude, Thank you so thanks for me. joining us. I think that's what you meant. We're inviting ourselves to your home. Always so. welcome. <laughs> to the Rocky Mountains. Thank you very much. Wow, that was such a good episode. Yes, yes, yes. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bell Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us if you did one or all of the following three things. One, uh, tell one person about the podcast or two or three or just tell your friends. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspagan Foundation. You can get there through www.naspagan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that Naspagan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and the guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Thank you all for listening. All right. Bye-bye. Until next time. Ta-ta for now.